Black Male Weekend has kicked off in South Carolina. Trump visits. Then we will jump into judicial drama, the new dress code policy in Congress, and the military alludes to restarting the draft. Let's get into it. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Magnifying Glass podcast. I'm your host, Elena Moore, and today with me is my co-host, Liam Ford. We have a lot of different topics to cover today, but let's go ahead and jump into the first one, which is that of Trump visiting South Carolina last weekend, or last week, I believe it was Monday, and he came to Somerville, but he first went, dropped by the headquarters in North Charleston. So I was actually there for that. Here's a few photos and videos that you can see. It was, it seemed to be kind of his normal visits, but it was a little bit more personal than his other ones because he talked to a lot more of his volunteers and supporters in South Carolina. One of the major things that I noticed that was a little different, even more so, was his comments that he makes about electric vehicles in South Carolina and within the United States. He, uh, President Trump has made his opinions very clear on the fact that he does not like the moving to electric vehicles. And every single time he's done that, the past three visits that he's made, which I have been at, every time when he makes those comments, he just looks at Henry McMaster, which is the governor, and who as we have talked about in other podcasts, has a huge electric vehicle initiative in South Carolina. And a lot of times when Trump is talking about how bad electric vehicles are and how they're not sustainable and how we have, you know, oil right underneath our feet that we could be using instead and it would be much cheaper and efficient, he always says, isn't that right, Henry? Takes a look over at him. Well, when that happened at the Pickens rally on July 4th, his independence rally, I happened to get some footage of Henry McMaster's reaction. And not only his reaction, but his wife's reaction, which was to lean over and whisper something to her husband as they just kind of stood there with their arms crossed grimacing. So that was my personal favorite. After that, he went off to Somerville, which was done at a boating facility. They had a big um, parade there, and it, it seemed to be as normal. Lindsey uh, Graham was brought up by Trump, and he was booed, as has become the normal in South Carolina. Very proud of my fellow South Carolinians for that one. I think it'd be better if he started to uh, remove him from office rather than boo him after you elect him for six more years, but fair enough. I think that's a great idea. I am definitely not opposed to it. Anytime he would like to resign or uh, anytime the legislature would like to remove him, I'd be good with. Yeah. And I, I, it is also weird that Trump would sit there and, you know, even as the crowd starts to boo him, why does he, you know, continue to not necessarily dig a hole with the crowd, but why is he so set on praising Lindsey Graham? You know, you know, he's my friend, he helps me get things done from the left, which kind of sounds like a dig, but also, you know, he's like, he's my friend. And during, you know, Trump's first term, didn't necessarily have Trump's back at all. So it, it doesn't feel uh, genuine. It also doesn't feel necessary. And it doesn't feel uh, like it was the right thing to do for Trump politically, or just for the American people. So it was, it was a very strange scene uh, to watch to watch that interaction go down. You know, I have 
debated on that fact a lot. And I've tried to think, okay, why is he putting Lindsey Graham so much up on a pedestal? You know, I think he does. He obviously makes some digs at him and, and did in Pickens as well. But the only way I can wrap my brain around it is he's trying to leverage Lindsey Graham's power because he's the second most powerful person in Congress. But at this point, it has become a laughing stock for his supporters. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's not like Lindsey Graham is unpopular but effective. He's ineffective and he's unpopular. So, yes, I mean, the way that the Senate works, it's just a seniority thing with, oh, well, you've been here for this much long, this long, so you have this much power and the seniority it gives you. But at the end of the day, Lindsey Graham's been a shill for the deep state and the establishment for his entire career. He should be everything that Trump is fighting against. He, uh, you know, Trump says he wants to stop the whole uh, war in Ukraine. Well, Lindsey Graham has been pushing the war in Ukraine since 2014, whenever he was p- promising a, a counteroffensive from Ukraine into, uh, for the Russian annexation of Crimea. So for nine years, he's been pushing for a war in Ukraine. Trump wants to end it. So why is he? Why are these the friends that he's making? It just doesn't seem to make sense. The the people that Trump praises and the, those that he attacks. Um, I don't know why you would want to necessarily get into bed with Gavin Newsom and Lindsey Graham while also alienating people in your own party that have been way more conservative than their counterparts on, on issues like Ukraine, on like on COVID, and all these other policies. So it's, it's just been a weird uh, few months for the Trump campaign as far as making friends, not just with Lindsey Graham, but, but a couple of other examples as well. Yeah, it's definitely... Uh... South Carolinians I, if, that I have met that are Trump supporters are very against it. It, it does take a strain because you're trying to support him. Mm-hmm. You want to support him. That's where your heart is. But he's making friends and hopping into bed with the exact people that you are trying to remove. Right. And even, even more concerningly, the exact same people that he says he won't put in his second administration because he says that they're the reason that he had a ineffective first administration. When does that start to come to fruition? You know, you would think that you would want to kind of prove that to your most loyal supporters during the campaign. And so far, he's kind of proven the opposite. So hopefully that turns around. Hopefully that changes. But again, just just very, very confusing and concerning uh, decisions um, from from Trump in, in, in South Carolina. Absolutely. Well, hopefully we will see a turn in the tide, really crossing my fingers on this one. He's going to win either way. Like at the end of the day, he is just going to win either way. But, you know, it would be nice to see a little bit of uh, movement in the right direction rather than Lindsay, my BFF. Right. If we're going to clean the swamp, let's clean it. Yeah. And you can start with Lindsay. (laughs) Number one offender. (laughs) So... Well, on that note, let's go ahead and talk about a little bit of the dress code, new dress code policies in Congress. Didn't they switch over a new dress code because, what's that Pennsylvania guy's name? John Uh, Fetterman. John Fetterman. Um, Yeah. So, well, they did, and then they went back. So Chuck Grassley had the very important announcement to the American people, I think it was yesterday on Twitter, whenever he said uh, that the Senate, kind of bucked Mitch McConnell's leadership on the issue, but unanimously voted to reinstate the professional dress code that has governed the the Senate for over 200 years now, as it should be. Uh, And it was just funny because not only do you think that, oh, what are the important issues facing the American people? 
Well, the dress code in Congress has to be, you know, top three at least. If not number one, it has to be at least top three. Uh, but it was interesting to see the comments on his on, on Chuck Grassley's announcement. The top one, the top voted comment on, on X or Twitter, I'm just going to call it Twitter, but don't get offended, uh, Elon. I will don't, always don't call us. it Twitter. I will always I, call I, it Twitter. It's, it's, it's been, it's been a that. cultural mainstay for 15 years. I don't understand how you can just switch it now and expect us all to go along with it. So, so the top comment on Chuck Grassley's tweet announcing the revision back to the old Senate dress code was good because if we had people in hoodies robbing us, it would just be too obvious. <laughs> and then, you know, the kind of the sentiment of the entire comment section was at least we have senators that are willing to fight for the American people on the important issues. The fact that this was even a topic of discussion, the fact that they even voted in the first place to invert the... 200 plus years of tradition just for John Fetterman's weird fetish for wearing hoodies and shorts, which by the way, nobody should ever do. That's a terrible fashion decision on any day. I don't care what you're doing. Uh, Never do that. But then in the Senate, you've got to be kidding me. But it just kind of goes to show that you have Republicans and Democrats alike that as long as it's doing some nothing for the American people, They'll, they'll be unanimous. You know, as long as there's no benefit, as long as it's not in the benefit of the American interests, then 100% you can have people come together, hold hands, sing kumbaya in the Senate, and they'll get something done. Uh, the, question, the problem is that whenever it gets to a point where they actually have to do something to help the American people, whether it's, I don't know, homelessness for an increasing number of veterans or rising inflation, they can't, they can't, they can't do anything. They're completely yep. ineffective. And so that's you know, it, that's when we have to you know do a new dress code. Yes, I mean I'm just I'm just, the only thing I will say that I'm glad about is that Nancy Mace won't be able to show up from her um, uh, encounter with her fiance for a prayer dinner in some tempting garb. Let's put it that way, <laughs> just because she was late to use her words. Um, but yeah, so I mean the whole the whole thing was a joke, and I I find it entertaining uh, as much as I do disappointing. You have to laugh or cry. I'm choosing to laugh. Maybe I'll cry tonight about it. But right now I'm choosing to laugh. The funny thing is, though, that Fetterman, the day after this happened, probably had his best day in Congress. And I know that's a very low bar. But in one of the committee hearings that he was overseeing, he was actually very strong on the idea that we should be preventing foreign nationals, particularly those who belong to a country who we view as an adversary, obviously China being the number one example of this, from owning land around U.S. military installations, owning U.S. farmland, and things like that. So I was very surprised to see, you know, John Fetterman, first of all, in a suit, uh, and then second of all, actually addressing a fairly important issue, and one that most people on both sides of the aisle have been too fearful to address. So I'd be, you know, really happy to see something move forward along that. I really hope that, you know, I wish John Fetterman all the best of luck on pushing that through. I would love to reclaim land, because I know there's, the, the amount of land that is owned whether it is close to sensitive information, sensitive U.S. military facilities, or I think even more concerningly, the amount of U.S. farmland that is owned by foreign nationals is a national security risk. And so it'd be great to see if he could push something through on that. And, you know, maybe we'll actually have something done besides the dress code in the Senate that will actually benefit the American people. But I wouldn't hold my breath if I were you. Or maybe he just was made a little deal with, oh, I'll help you with this piece of legislation if you let me wear what I want to. 
Uh, maybe, maybe. I'd, I'd prefer not to think too deeply into the quid pro quos that could be happening in Washington. That's a depressing topic. Well, that's, that's my job, so I'll take that one on for you. Well, as we turn from the exciting adventures of our federal Congress, let's look at some of the non-judicial reform in South Carolina. Judicial reform has been a super hot topic in this state for a couple of years now, really ever since the Murdoch trials. And while those are still ongoing with his financial uh, dealings, one of his best buddies, the minority House leader Todd Rutherford, has still been acting like he can do whatever he wants, which really, I guess he can at this point. Minority House Leader Todd Rutherford showed up two hours late to a hearing for his client charged with trafficking. Just to give you an idea about this, Todd Rutherford not only serves on some of the most powerful uh, legislator, lawyer legislator positions in um, government here, in state government, but he also happens to be one of the biggest defense lawyers that take on some very interesting clients with very long rap sheets and like Gerard Price get on off scot-free at least for a little while. His most recent dealings was on September 13th of this year, Fitz News reported that Robert Marks, a thrice convicted violent drug offender who appears to have received preferential treatment from South Carolina's justice system on account of his powerful attorney, one of the lawyer legislators who picks judges in the Palmetto State, Todd Rutherford. On Wednesday, a gaggle of television cameras filled the Richland County and just to give you this an idea, this is on September 13th, so the Thursday before that, or I believe, or Wednesday before that, excuse me, uh, filled the Richland County Courthouse in downtown Columbia, South Carolina to watch Marks receive belated justice, or what could be passed for it in connections with a 2016 drug trafficking arrest, one that should have put him behind bars for decades a long, long time ago. Again, this is being reported by Fitz News. Marks is a 39-year-old Richland County native with a lengthy rap sheet laden with drug and weapons charges dating all the way back to 2001. Marks was uh, represented on these charges by powerful lawyer legislator Todd Rutherford, who saw that coming, uh, who sits on the influential South Carolina Judicial Merit Selection Committee and serves as minority leader of the South Carolina House of Representatives. Perhaps more than any other state lawmaker, Rutherford controls and profits from the corrupt system of judicial selection in the Palmetto State. Our audience will recall Rutherford also represented convicted killer and gang leader Gerard Price, who was unconstitutionally released from custody of South Carolina Department of Corrections in March of this year, sparking a nationwide manhunt. What a time to be alive. While Rutherford is reportedly staring down the business end of a federal investigation regarding his official duties as a lawmaker, his power of the Palmetto State justice system was on full display Wednesday. To give you an idea, this hearing for, what's his name again, Robert Marks, prosecutors have been trying to set a hearing for him, I believe, 32 months. It's been almost three years, if I'm doing my right, math right since uh, he has not had a hearing and he is being represented by Todd Rutherford. Well, his hearing that they finally got scheduled was scheduled for two o'clock on Wednesday. Todd Rutherford didn't show up till 423. I guess he must have 
forgot whether or not he was at his house in Charleston opposed to his house in Columbia. Who really knows at this point? But the day after this hearing on that Thursday, he was seen at Alex Murdaugh's financial trial. And as Murdaugh was being walked in on a chain I mean, he was literally being held like a, a, a chain leash in a way. You mean like a murderer? Almost like a murderer, you could say. Wow. He's walking in to go sit down at his side of the table. And he just happens to walk by Todd Rutherford, who was there on time that morning. And they stop to shake each other's hand. And you can just see this photo here where Todd Rutherford and Alex are just grinning back and forth to each other. At least he made it on time for that to see his old Democrat buddy as maybe justice is served. Who knows? Judicial reform has been a really hot topic. It's something Alan, the Attorney General of South Carolina, Alan Wilson, has taken on. Mind you, Alan didn't take on the issue of judicial reform until after the legislature signed died and broke for the summer. So, you know, tons of stuff are, is going to get done now since it's on Wilson's radar. But it almost seems like more of a show. Things are still the same. It's just, oh, let's make an issue of this because a lot of people have gotten their panties in a wad about it and it's come on public national television for everyone to see through the Murdoch trial. And then let's just, you know, make a big issue but do nothing about it behind closed doors. Government's favorite tactic. It really is. So we'll keep an eye on that one, but there's some even more fun stuff to do with I guess you could say the Chamber of Commerce, which I would say is very hooked in with judicial reform and seems to just happen to be very hooked in with the um, House of Representatives. They have a weekend, an all-expense-paid weekend for the Freshman Caucus that is kicking off today, September 28th, and going all the way until October 1st. It is being held by the Myrtle Beach Chamber of Commerce, whole weekend, all expenses paid, so they can, I guess, schmooze the freshman caucus. It's, it's hard for me to try and come up with good things that they're probably doing. There's 27 freshman representatives. That is a ton because there were so many people that got involved running for these seats, which has made... Uh, which has made session in the house extremely interesting. But don't worry, they're going to try and get a hold on everything during Blackmail Weekend um, in Myrtle Beach just to make sure everything's taken care of. They're all on their side. You know, big business can come in and, and do what they want to just as long as the Chamber of Commerce has all of control over the votes. It seems that... Carla, I may be butchering this, Carla Schulitzer, who is a House representative from District 61 in Myrtle Beach, is heading up or at least helping spearhead this movement, contacting legislators to see if they're going to be able to come, these freshman um, House representatives, to see if they're able to come. And she is constantly saying, oh, just letting you know, 
expenses are covered. We really hope you're there. We would really miss you if you weren't there. Mind you, this happens every two years with every new freshman house caucus. Just something to, you know, muddle on and think about. You may not hear that one in the papers, but it is a time for, Carla always emphasizes, a time for them to get to know each other and get together and outside of session so they can put their brains together. I'm sure so many good things are going to come out of that. So as we keep an eye on that, we're going to dump, jump a little bit into this new mulings of a military draft, possibly. Yeah. Well, I know it's not what anybody wants to hear, uh, but obviously since the war in Ukraine started, we've basically essentially been involved in a proxy war with Russia, which is obviously great news for American interests. There's nothing that America needs more right now in a time of economic uh, recession. Absolutely. I mean, if you can't uh, get a well-paying job, why not go work for the military and hike on over to Ukraine? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what, what what more could you do in order to help your country recover from, you know, COVID and economic crisis, uh, then then go launch a proxy war and give hundreds of billions of dollars uh, to a foreign country. There's nothing doesn't doesn't seem like there's nothing more I would want to do than help my government cover up a bunch of money laundering schemes over there. No, no, not FTX. <clears throat> Sorry. Anyway, uh, so one of the interesting things to come out of the war in Ukraine is. There's been a lot of talk that the United States has some level of interest in the conflict, if only it is the testing of new weapon systems and to offload uh, kind of antiquated weapon systems, which, again, I don't, I don't really think that's the main uh, motivating. I don't think that's the reason we're involved at all by any standard, by any stretch of the imagination. But it is kind of uh, us, something else that is happening kind of tangentially uh, with the whole crisis in Ukraine. Another thing that we're learning is what does a major conflict look like in the 21st century between two, you know, big powers? Because you really haven't had a large-scale conflict like this in a long time, <clears throat> at least between two modernized militaries. What would that look like? What kind of demands would that exert if the United States were to get involved in that? And that that was kind of the foundation or the or the the origin for a paper from the War College uh, that that was titled A Call to Action, Lessons from Ukraine for the Future Force. And it basically just breaks down the the history, in kind of recent history, of the U.S. Armed Forces, the fact that we haven't been engaged in uh, any large-scale conflict like this outside of, you know, obviously you can count Afghanistan and Iraq, but for the most part, that wasn't a force-on-force uh, engagement. And, you know, it kind of even mentions, mentions in here that in Afghanistan over two decades, I think the United States took 50,000 casualties, which is way too many. Again, we should never have been in there. The whole thing was based on, on BS. Imagine that, the government lying to you. What? But one what? of the estimations, uh, incredible, right? One of the estimations that the War College makes in here is that if the United States were to get into a large force-on-force conflict similar to the one that we're seeing in Ukraine against Russia, whether that be with Russia or with China or another country, then we could expect to see up to 3,600 casualties per day. And so we would reach that 50,000 mark that we saw in two decades uh, in Afghanistan. We would reach that in 
two weeks if we were going to move into this large force-on-force -force conflict. So again, not in any way making light or, or belittling the loss of life and, and the travesty that was you know, the United States involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq, but uh, it, it wouldn't, honestly, it wouldn't even hold a candle to something that if this Cold War basically with Russia turns hot or if we end up getting into a conflict with China, as you know, the War College estimates. Now, the funny thing is kind of how the War College goes on to diagnose this problem and then what they want to do uh, to, to fix it. So first of all, they have a section in here uh, called Culture Eat Strategy for Breakfast, which I think has some legitimate tactical, you know, it's, it's true. It, it, we all kind of know it's true. It, it's the reason that every organization, every, uh, I mean, on earth, really, whether it's a sports team to a company, everybody focuses a lot, especially in the last couple of decades, on culture because they've realized that it dictates how effective your employees are, your sports team is, or your soldiers are as a unit. If they don't feel connected, if they don't have you know a common interest, if they don't understand why they're doing what they're doing, you're really just not going to see uh, great operational success out of them. However, what the War College fails to understand here is kind of the root cause of what has been killing the armed forces culture. It mentions in a positive light uh, General Milley uh, in this section, which obviously anybody who has three brain cells to rub together could tell you has been arguably the worst thing for the culture of the armed forces uh, ever because you have a guy going up in front of Congress and belittling, you know, the white, the traditional white uh, archetype that you have in the U.S. military, straight white male, you know, comes from a Christian background. And, and he's up there in front of Congress saying that, you know, he needs to understand his white rage and, and, and things like that, which is completely, completely absurd. And so, if you look at what the war college, if you look, I mean, we can look at recruiting too. The recruiting for all branches of the military has been in the gutter uh, for a few years now, again, because the military has gone woke. The military has kind of ignored the patriotism aspect that got so many people to sign up and to, to become part of the military. And so I 100% agree with their statement that culture eats strategy for breakfast, but it's just interesting because they completely miss the point that they're trying to address. The idea of how you would go about fixing the culture within the U.S. military is not to make it more diverse or make it more woke or try and meet more DEI quote, uh, quotas. That's not how you would do it. You would have to go back to what actually worked for two centuries that made the U.S. military so great. The idea of you know protecting America, patriotism, lean into the archetype of what the average U.S. soldier has been and, and the reason why so many uh, of those who volunteer to become part of the military come from families who have served is because it becomes a point of pride within mm -hmm. that family. It, it's just so interesting because I, it seems like they're honestly trying to address this problem. It seems like they're accurately diagnosing what could become a very real problem in terms of replacing 3,600 casualties per day, but they couldn't even come close to accurately diagnosing the root cause of the problem or how they would actually have to bump up recruitment. It, it was just kind of well, interesting Well, it that. seems so that a lot of times in governmental agencies or branches, whatever you want to call them, they give you half-truths. So you get there, mm -hmm. you get to the, to the climax together. 
and you see that. But mm-hmm. how you s- solve the problem that you can both identify is in two opposite extremes. Yep. So they get you there. Completely they get you opposite. there with those half truths, and then the rest is just complete. I mean, BS, really. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's antithetical to what they say they're trying to accomplish. But obviously, with the whole thirty-six hundred casualties per day. You know, and you're going to need to replace those, obviously, if you're going to keep your military functioning. How is the U.S. military going to be able to meet those numbers whenever recruitment has been falling cataclysmically year over year for a couple of years now? There's only one real answer. It's been used before, and you you already see them setting the groundwork up for this again. Uh, the U.S. military saying that, oh, well, yeah, men can become women, but not just to avoid the draft. And so if you have the intent to avoid the draft whenever you, you know, declare you're transitioning or whatever, you know, they're kind of setting up the, the, the framework to lay into motion the draft whenever it becomes necessary. And I, and I totally think that within the next couple of years, you're probably going to see some type of hot conflict. I don't know if it's going to be, you know, United States military on the ground uh, engaging against Russia and Ukraine, or if it will be with China or somewhere else. But you just kind of get the sense that all of the institutions who have a vested interest in this are preparing for a force-on-force conflict with another major power. They're laying the groundwork for the draft. And so, you know, people should really start preparing with that in mind. You know, what is that going to look like for you and your family? Um, It's a scary thought, but, you know, better to be prepared. And with the way things are going right now, both within the U.S., military industrial complex, the infrastructure that's being laid there, but also on the international scale. Uh, you have you know, a crisis of population in China. You have an ongoing conflict that's a proxy war in Russia against Ukraine. And so things are very unstable right now geopolitically whenever it comes to, to the potential for military conflict. And the, this is just the latest example out of the War College uh, that they kind of see it coming. Well, I too. think it's interesting how... The military, the the U.S. military can be so politically correct for so many years during what you could call a time of peace where they're shoving down your throats. Oh, girls can be boys and boys can be girls. And this is how we're going to change all the new military tests so it's not as difficult on transgenders. And then all of a sudden, when we're most likely going to get into a huge conflict, whether that's going to be World War Three or whatever you want to call it, Oh, all of a sudden, political correctness out the window. Now we've got to go back to reality, and we're going to draft all the guys. And I'm sure, you know, we've been seeing a lot of hot back and forth in Congress during um, possible conflicts about whether or not a draft should be just men or men and women. Then you're getting into the whole ideology thing all over again. But remember, ideology only applies when... We're at peace. It it comes. Yeah, it's it's a luxury yeah. thing. Ideology is a luxury, and so whenever push comes to shove, you know that they're going to abandon their ideology because you know your life depends on it. And but as soon as you know, let's say let's say you go into a conflict, by the time it ends, they'll go right back to having drag shows, you know, on military bases. It's it's just one of those things that you have to you have to understand that ideology is is a luxury. And so when people are going to, you know, be faced with the threat of extinction, well, 
then they'll put their ideology aside. But as soon as as soon as they're safe again, or they maybe they're not safe, but even they, if they just feel safe, uh, then they'll go right back to pushing their ideology. Well, I guess I probably need to go ahead and start referring to you as a, a she, her, or give you some different pronouns. Yes. Yes. I don't want to be a draft E, so yeah. she, Leanna. her will work. But uh, I guess it'll work. I'll, I'll start growing out my hair. Yeah, you might want to take care of the beard, too, because uh, that might mm. cause some issues. That's well, apparently point. it doesn't cause that many issues in peacetime, but, you know, just for the looks. No, 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 no. It, see, no, if you think I'm a man right now, uh, it's it's transphobic. Oh, my yeah. bad. I think. I don't know. I, I get all confused. I don't know. Well, I think the I government's confused, too, and the military especially, except except when they're going to make some profit off of some more, and then maybe not so much. Money makes the world go around. It really does. But remember, we're not scientists, so we can't tell you what is a girl and what is a boy. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Magnifying Glass podcast. We delve deep, bringing the overlooked into focus and magnifying the stories that matter to you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and share, helping us shine a light on even more discoveries. I'm your host, Elena Moore, and as Leanna would say, remember, sometimes the smallest details make the biggest difference. Until next time, keep looking closer.